The Outsiders podcast number 46. Bryn Griffiths along with Robin Brownlee. How you doing, Robin? I'm good, Bryn. How are you doing today, man? Very good, thank you. Hey, listen, lots of stuff to get into this past weekend. Calgary Flames and the Edmonton Oilers squared off in back-to-back games on Friday and Saturday night. The first one was close. The second one was not and it was a monstrous blowout for the Edmonton Oilers on Saturday night that sent shockwaves rippling through the city of Calgary as to what the hell is going on with their hockey club. Where do you want to start with this one? Well, you know, start start with the result. After the first game was competitive, uh, the second game here was uh, just a no-show. Uh, almost top to bottom, uh, you know, uh, Sam, Sam, Sam Bennett and, uh, Matt Kachuk showed up, uh, the goaltending, uh, never quite got here. Uh, it was embarrassing. And the thing about that is you get caught up in one of those train wrecks once in a while, but this came shortly after coach Jeff Ward had publicly crapped on the team, uh, for their effort and execution, uh, of late. And when there's no result, when it's a collective shoulder shrug, you wonder what's going on down there. And I don't know what it is. I'm not going to speculate, but to me, when a coach speaks out at that level and there is no reaction, it's never a good sign. 38% of my Twitter base is based in Calgary. So I get a lot of feedback after games like this, and it's always a bit of an adventure. It's always quite entertaining, no matter who wins or loses, but man, oh man, the fan base is, is, They've really become impatient. A lot of people obviously want to go after the head coach, but you know what? This is a team that really, what's it done in the last five to 10 years? And and there's going to be people saying, well, what have the Edmonton Oilers done? Well, that's not the point here. The point here is what have the Calgary Flames done? And it, this is a team that's been put together by Brad Trailiving, who I got a lot of time for. I think he's a great guy. But at some point, you can't keep firing coaches you can only trade so many players, and maybe that's going to be the next step if they if they do miserably against mm-hmm. Ottawa and Toronto this week. But the bottom line for me is at the conclusion of this season, if they don't make it, I think they're going to have to make some changes right from the very top and not just in the middle of the pack. I can't disagree with you. The first thing that happens, and we know this, Bryn, whether it's right or wrong doesn't matter. It's just how it goes. You will see uh, a player change, a personnel change. If that does nothing, then you see a coaching change. And if that doesn't work, we know what happens next. 
Uh, the people at the very top say, look, uh, Brad, this is your club. Uh, this is the uh, collection of talent you put together. Uh, we haven't seen results. We've tried to switch up some players. We've made a coaching change. Uh, now we're looking at you. You know, it always goes in that progression. And uh, like I said, Bren, I don't know what it is, but there's something not right there. I wish I had somebody in that dressing room on the down low, uh, like you often did uh, during the days on the beat, but I don't. But it, there's something not right there. And the bottom line is being in the playoffs and being a contender. And if you struggle uh, and you don't make the playoffs, or even if you sneak in and you're, you're one and done, um, they've got to ask some questions down there. Because to me, this team looks like it should be better than it's performed so far. Well, they went out and signed the best potential goalie of free agency yep. in Markstrom. And I thought, whoa, this, that, that's a monster signing. The Edmonton Oilers had their shot at him, but couldn't get that deal done. And he looked at Calgary and Calgary said, come on down. I thought they were going to be yep. better than this. To say where they are right now in the standings is a bit of a disappointment. They've got a big week ahead of them because I think Ottawa is getting tougher to play, not easier to play now. And I think as we go down the stretch and Ottawa's got a chance to basically F somebody's playoff hopes up, that's fun. We've seen teams go through that. Well, we've certainly seen yep. it enough in Edmonton where the teams were out of it and then realized, mm -hmm. you know what, we can really rain on somebody's parade here. So those games against Ottawa, I think, are becoming less of a free space on the bingo card the closer we get to the conclusion of the season. And they've got Toronto. Now, the Oilers, comparatively speaking, you know, they've got two games out in Vancouver, and then they have Toronto in here for three or four games. I don't know. I've lost track after so many, but that's not going to be an easy run for the Edmonton Oilers, but they're in a situation where they've won nine of their last 11, and that's pretty impressive. The goaltending looks like it's getting its shit together. So who knows what's going to happen here? And they play Toronto really tough. There's the Austin against Connor thing. There's a lot of dynamics going on here, but I'm going to be watching what happens with the Flames very closely this week. And the other stuff with the Oilers is just going to be more out of curiosity than anything. Yeah, you know, there's also problems out on the coast, Bryn. Let's not forget about those mighty Canucks. Uh, uh, they are struggling. They could be uh, playing from way back in the pack, even further than they are now, if they don't get it together. Um, I thought they would be better. I thought they'd be right on that cusp of a playoff. Uh, you know, the Oilers can do themselves a big favor by taking points from them. The Toronto one, and we've got some time before that happens, that's going to be the one because you can get some separation both ways. The, the Canucks or the Flames could really drop off down with the Senators, and the Oilers could really put themselves up near the front of the pack with the Maple Leafs based on what they do against the Canucks uh, and head-to-head -head with the Maple Leafs and say they saw that off, that's fine but you're seeing a little separation now upward and downward. So um, I think it's going to be a little bit clearer probably two weeks from now. Yeah, I think too, the Montreal Canadiens, I go, wow, these guys are really seem to be coming around. And then they play a couple of stinkers. And I yeah. go, what's up with that? So for me, uh, my jury's still a little out in Montreal, but I think they've got some pretty good talent there. But I think we're going into an, an interesting three weeks ahead here where it's, I'm with you. I think we're going to start to see the pack not so much thin, but basically start to work itself out a little bit. Yep. We'll see. It's, uh, you know, the Edmonton Oilers have played the Calgary Flames only three times so far. There's seven more meetings to come. 
So there's a long way to go on this before we go too much further. Okay, this past weekend we had two outdoor games in Lake Tahoe. Every time the National Hockey League plays an outdoor game, it's in a market, and it's clearly being played for that market. Now I really don't think they care what people think about that particular game in Vancouver or Winnipeg or Buffalo or Carolina. If the game's in Dallas and it's the Dallas, uh, if it's the Dallas Stars against, let's say, the Chicago Blackhawks, yeah, it's kind of important for Chicago, but it's really the game's being marketed for a place like Dallas where they're trying to put hockey more on the radar screen. Now, this series this past weekend against, you know, where we had two, we actually had four different teams in two games in Lake Tahoe. The ice was a problem during the day, which can't really be a huge surprise to anybody, but they've put it in a beautiful setting, but it really isn't marketing a specific location. Now, we have Patrick LaForge joining us today. Patrick was, you know, instrumental in the very first Heritage Classic in Edmonton. I'm kind of curious yep. to get his thoughts on that, but I liked I liked what I saw at Lake Tahoe in those two games, but, you know, it's a shame for the National Hockey League because they wanted full NBC coverage, and they were going to get it during the day on Saturday and Sunday, and both games got pushed to the evening, so therefore the, the games got pushed off to the cable network. So I don't think the NHL is too happy about that. Well, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to picking Patrick's brain about this, but I'll say this. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful setting, and I get that. You know, that's kind of cool. It's kind of nostalgic, the, the pond hockey thing, even though it's in an arena near the lake. But I And I know they looked at uh, coming up here, you know, at, at Lake Louise and, and that sort of thing. And it wasn't doable, amenities and blah, blah, blah. I would still love to see that to me. And I don't mean on the, I don't know if you could do it on the lake itself, but an arena by the lake, hey, if you could, let's go for it. But Calgary, Edmonton, um, hey, you could even do one in, one in the south in, in the Banff Lake Louise area and one in the Jasper area that would be Edmonton's home rink if you wanted to call it that. I guess they tried it. It didn't work. You know, National Park, I don't know how that plays into it. But there is there is interest there beyond a spectacular setting. Love the idea of the setting, but it means more if it does something for the markets that are close to that setting. We do have to remind you that our program, The Outsiders, is brought to you by our friends at the McIntosh Group. Brent McIntosh and everybody do a great job selling homes. We'll tell you more about Brent and his team coming up in a little bit. When we return, we're going to be talking to former president and CEO of the Edmonton Oilers, a guy who shares the same birthday as me. I, I didn't know that until I did a little homework on him this past weekend, but we won't be talking about that, although I might bring it up if it embarrasses him just a little bit. But we're going to be, <laughs> chat, we're going to be having a little bit of fun with our guests when we return, and that will be Patrick LaForge. Joining us is former president and CEO of the Edmonton Oilers, Patrick LaForge. Great to see you. How are you doing? Uh, good to see you, Brent. Thanks a lot. It's great to be invited, uh, uh, you and the gang, and uh, great topic to discuss today. So I'm pumped about this. 
Well, there's a couple of things that we want to chat about, but first and foremost, Robin and I were just talking a couple of minutes ago about the two games in Lake Tahoe, the outdoor games, and it seems like it's the first time that I can think of where the game wasn't in a specific market where they were trying to market the game for that city. This is just an unbelievably beautiful location, and they had their they had their struggles over the weekend, but still, once again, the National Hockey League was able to get it put together, and I know that you would have been watching it a little more closely than a lot of us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, I was. I, I watched every detail. Uh, one of my business associates has uh, just built a Rick Kozabak. He just built a, an arena there in, uh, the, in, in the welcoming center for Lake Tahoe, but he happened to be there on business. Of course, he stayed the extra day and a half to watch the game. He coached uh, professionally, coached in the Western League and played. And so he was just uh, having a great time. But he, early in the day, he said to me, there's not a cloud in the sky. He texted me and said, there's not a cloud in the sky. This is going to be a much warmer day than anybody predicted. So, And it, and it, and it turned out that way. But uh, great location. If you don't have fans, I mean, if you don't have fans, you could play it on the rooftop of the Empire State Building. You could uh, play it on the deck of the Queen Mary. You could do it on a cruise boat in Bahamas. Um, you know, the, the, the locations where you can get 85 by 200, they're everywhere. And uh, get enough refrigeration. God knows what you could do. And I, I still think the game fascinates the sports market. So why not Lake Tahoe? Yeah, good idea. Patrick, uh... I know the NHL looked into Alberta. There was some talk about the Banff area. Uh, it it wasn't going to work for, for whatever reason. Now, I don't know if that was, if it's a national park, if that matters or what logistics stopped it. But when I look at an outdoor game in a, in a picturesque setting like that, somewhere in Jasper and someplace in Banff look like naturals yeah. to me. And it, drags in the Calgary and Edmonton markets uh, as interesting. Do you see that happening or is that going to be uh, out the door as a possibility once we can get people back into arenas? I, I, yeah, I think the way they'd frame it or the way I'd frame that, the answer to that question is uh, in the markets in which it's been played and it'll continue to do it this way, you can just about get a, all of your fans in one building if you're playing it at Dodger Stadium or a, a facility that seats or would hold uh, Commonwealth size around 60,000. And so they see it as a real opportunity. Well, of course, it pays for itself. It makes money for the for the club and the league. But it it also is gathering, as they were somebody was writing recently, it's a gathering of the clan of the hockey insiders if you will the hockey lovers in los angeles and denver and wherever else they want to go so part of that is uh, that is a real building strategy as i see it from the outside and not in the meetings but i see it from the outside that that is a really good thing as uh no matter where you go you want to have the maximum number of fans who, who who see the odyssey of it but at the same time come to watch a hockey game maybe for the first time in their lives they bring their children next door neighbors. So th th that's got a lot of attraction in the third or fourth category of pro sport uh, league in North America. That's got a lot of interest for the NHL. Patrick, I, I keep hearing people say that, you know, I'm losing interest in these games and that's coming from somebody in Calgary or Edmonton or Vancouver. Yeah. Where the game is in another market. 
And I always tell those people, look, we're trying to sell the game in those markets. It's, it's vital for these teams to have the event, and it's vital for them to be successful with it because it could ensure their future for a very, very long time. Am I wrong? No, it's, it's totally true. Hockey is still uh, requires growth. And uh, there's so many parts of the, uh, well, the U.S. market, 350 million people, so many parts of that market where hockey does not have a route, it doesn't have a, a building block and an entertaining idea, which is an outdoor game surrounded by a whole bunch of events, as you know, um, all kinds of uh, equipment and travel and and superstars and NFL guys and girls and people and so forth. They create it as a hadassa of fun of sport. And uh, Dodger Stadium was a great example of that. I mean, Vin Scully was there to call the game. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he alone's got about 7 million followers. So uh, everybody that's hosted it in markets, as you say, Brad, which are emerging markets for hockey, they, they report back, it was just a great success. Outstanding. People wear the T-shirts for years. They remember the event. They took pictures. It's, it's, the, it's the thing to do. Patrick, I got to go back to 2003. Well, actually, it goes back well before that, as you would know yeah. better than anybody. That original Her Heritage Classic was such a spectacle. I know they had the big game down in Michigan with the college teams, but that game here in 03, I mean, you were in that from the ground floor. And I always smile when I hear about the genesis of it. And I mean, did this really start at least the the seed of the idea with a survey among Molson beer drinkers uh, back in the day? <laughs> it did. It did. Uh, it's funny. I was uh, doing some business with an alumnus of that time from Molson, and uh, but, you know, in the eighties and nineties, we were beer advertising by brands that only become legal. It's kind of like what it was the cannabis of the day. Nobody knows what brand, but today it's pretty it's pretty universal. Anyway, we were doing research about what beer drinkers liked, other than cold beer and hot weather and those kinds of things. So uh, there was research and reams and reams of it coming in from across Canada, survey work done. And one of the things that got in the top five or six was seeing professional NHL hockey players play pickup hockey on my rink, like in my neighborhood where I live, you know, that one of those things. And we thought about that a lot. And uh, in Toronto, there's a lot of neighborhood rinks where we could have used uh, the Daryl Settlers and, and the others of the day, but uh, we just couldn't get traction with the building seating and people just never, so it kind of fell in the drawer. And, uh, but I never forgot about it. I thought it was a really good idea. <laughs> And uh, something I wish we would have pursued at the time anyway. Yes, that was the, the there was two motivating parts to this. Uh, uh, one, we went to the Los Angeles All-Star Game in 2000. And uh, the All-Star Game was there. And uh, Alan Watt, myself, Cal Nichols. And it was just awful. And uh, it wasn't, it was, a, it was a very standard NHL All-Star Game. But here we are city of 8 million people, more than half are Hispanic, uh, more than this, about all sports lovers. 
NFL had failed in Los Angeles. Yeah. And uh, here we were with uh, the Dodgers and an NHL team, and we were presenting, you know, a, a typical hockey game. And the All-Star game is sort of we don't want to bump into one another because nobody wants to get hurt. We're all hanging out together. And Matt Sundin was doing figure eights at center ice. And I couldn't watch it. There were palm trees and pink lemonade everywhere in the building. And as we got to the airport, I was saying to Alan, he said, what'd you think? I said, because we were in line. Our 25th anniversary was coming up in 2003. So, uh, four, three, four. And uh, so we were thinking to ourselves, what are we going to do for 25? And uh, that we were just talking, talking. So what do you think of the All-Star game? We can try and get it away from Minnesota, who had it already locked up. And uh, so I said, well, if we had to do what we did in Los Angeles, I mean, that's just, that stinks. We won five Stanley Cups in seven years. We have the best uh, all-star list uh, team that ever existed in the National Hockey League on the planet. And why would we have Matt Sundin out there doing figure eights? That just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, If we're going to do something, let's do something hockey-themed and and uh, that was the genesis of the conversation. So one, we were trying to get the 25th, and two, we weren't going to embarrass ourselves in Edmonton. And uh, so we started talking about, okay, what could we do? Well, why don't we get Wayne and Mark and those guys to play a pickup game and an outdoor rink? And, the, and that was just it. And, and from there, in the three-and-a-half-hour flight from L.A. back to Edmonton on Air Canada 15 or whatever it was, and about a bushel full of napkins, maybe an odd Molson Canadian and some pens. Uh, the ideas started to get started, you know, more or less. Now, now we didn't finish it or anything like that, but we started to really talk about what could we do for our 25th anniversary. Now, my understanding is one of the final steps, well, there were a lot of steps, but to actually saying, yeah, we're going to do this was sort of a family affair for you. You and Pierre Boyvan of Montreal. Uh, keeping it in the family, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, would you like to do this? Would you show up? Uh, yeah, it sounds good. I mean, that's a long leap from napkins and beer surveys to watching the, the uh, uh, old, I don't hate to call them old timers, the uh, early Oilers come out filing into Commonwealth Stadium, followed by the main game. That sounds like a hell of a lot of work to pull that off. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's lots of issues that were in the way. So this is 2001. The first thing we did was find out, can we make ice, uh, you know, a, a variable outdoor ice that the NHL would skate on and say it was five above or 15 below? What's the ice making problem that we're going to run into? So the head ice maker for the league was actually a guy from Northlands. And uh, he moved to New York and was doing things to go around the league to make sure ice plants were up to technical quality. So I called him and said, Dan, what do you know about this? He said, oh, I'd love that idea. I'd love it. He said, we could probably do it, I would think, eight to ten, eight degrees, eight degrees over, eight, eight, eight plus uh, Celsius. And uh, he said, I'd love to work on it if you're going to do it. He said, I, I'd happily volunteer. I'll come home, take some holidays off and, and work on it with you. So that kind of knocked that off. Uh, the, the Eskimos and uh, Huey Campbell and the crew, they were they had a good team, but they and they had the Western final 
date booked as <laughs> we always would. Uh, you always had the Western Pilots book, even when he had crappie teams, he said, we'll be there. So the stadium was locked up by the Eskimos into November, as you know, Western Final and then the, the Grey Cup. So um, as the date approached, we we had conversations with Huey and he was really, you know, hey, this is a very cool. So I don't know anything about hockey. I, I never skated in my life, but I just love the idea. And, um, and and at that point, we were still talking about a a, a senior bowl, if you will, with the uh, alumni of uh, the Oilers and some other team. And uh, so, but Huey was good with it. He said, whatever you got to do, we'll try and help you. We'll try and help sell tickets to our members. We'll do whatever, you know, to, to collaborate. So that was good. Uh, the city didn't really care as long as the Eskimos were out, out of, uh, not out of pocket or out of problem. And then we had the NHL and we had the NHL PA to deal with. Uh, at the time, as you know, heading into 04, there was a lot of angst between the union and the uh, owners of the C- of the NHL, and uh, to the point where getting somebody on either side of the table to agree that the sun was up or that it was cloudy today hmm. was that was a problem. And <laughs> so the idea of uh, innovation, innovating a game where players were going to play outside. I mean, it, it looked like an impossibility because it did require uh, the sanctioning of the NHL Players Association. And uh, and that meant they had to work with the NHL owners and Batman to do it. <laughs> so uh, there was that as well. I, I can fill in more of those blanks, but there were a lot of things to do between that and uh, and the period in which, and Gary said, you guys have to be able to do this uh, if you're going to schedule it around a game. So we thought Oilers would play home at Rexall Place and we'd play outdoors somewhere, Commonwealth, uh, the Senior Bowl, for a lack of a better. That was sort of the pencil on the one of the napkins. And um, we needed to announce that or get commitment to it a year in advance. So um, in 201 and, and early 202, I was busy getting all those boxes checked off with different groups, but key to it really was, without a doubt, uh, Wayne Gretzky uh, thinking that it was a cool idea and uh, and really Wayne pushing for it to be the all in, uh, a regular season home game outdoors and the senior bowl and really making it something special. And uh, he was, it took Wayne about five minutes to say I'm in. Then, then we had to invite somebody and to be our competitor. The natural was Calgary. Uh, but for the sake of all the things that we were trying to do, we were looking for a bigger splash. And I don't mean to downplay the Calgary, but yeah. Battle of Alberta was is and always will be fantastic event. But it doesn't attract the interest naturally from New York, Sports Illustrated, NBC, Toronto, Montreal, Chicago, Los Angeles, that we were looking for. And so we were trying to tick the boxes a little higher up. What could we do? And our first offer was to uh, uh, the New York Rangers, Glenn Sather. There was an obvious link there. And obviously the news, sports news capital of the world is Los Angeles or uh, New York. 
And we that would tie us into all the big magazines and New York print, press, radio, TV, all that stuff. And the entourage that travels with the Rangers. And uh, but uh, it didn't take long for Glenn to listen to my pitch and then say, no, not interested. And we didn't have a regular season game. That was the other part of the schedule was already pretty much penciled in. So we didn't have a regular season game with the Rangers home uh, that year. So we would have had to, it, there was things that needed to be done to negotiate a deal like that. So that checked that box off and, and away we went. My cousin, very distant, uh, Pierre Boivin, my mother's a Boivin. And uh, so family's all one. But anyway, Pierre was president of the Montreal Canadiens and Kevin Lowe said, why not the Habs? That would be a fantastic. So that, that we started there, started to work with them. Well, I got to tell you, you want to talk about how far reaching it went. I was at a sports radio conference that ESPN was putting on. One of the speakers was Jim Rome. Afterwards, had a chance to meet him. And he yeah. found out I was from Edmonton. First question, not a lot of questions asked of me, but the first one that was, was it was how cold? <laughs> like seriously, 57,000 people that cold. He just couldn't yeah. believe it. And uh, yeah. I, I guess the question for you is, do you have one memory that just stands out? I guess, is there, let me rephrase it. Is there one moment that's frozen in time for you after, for that, for that whole experience with that one game? Yeah. There, I bring there's so many, uh, there's the, there were, there were lots of reasons not to play the game, as you know, right up to, right up to, and you'll never, uh, the world will never know how close it came just hours before we were supposed to go on the ice. And, uh, and, and, and some of the discussions that went on in the Eskimo locker room between NHL club presidents, general managers, coaches, NHL PA presidents, Gary Batman and Bob da and Daly, Bill Daly, and, and the referees and our medical staff. I mean, it's easier to play a game with people in the seats with COVID, with the pandemic happening than where we were at that moment in, in that morning. And uh, it was, uh, I mean, there was a lot of reasons for things to go wrong. And it wasn't gonna be like Lake Tahoe yesterday where we'll just play it six hours from now. It, it wasn't gonna warm up. <laughs> we weren't gonna get any warmer. It wasn't gonna get any sunnier outside. So that, that, uh, that meeting actually happened uh, there was pregame skate in the morning. We had, because the ice pad was floating on a sand bed, we had the Golden Bears and a number of other teams uh, come out and skate on the pad the night before to settle it down and make sure it wasn't chipping and uh, with the ice people there. And so everything was set. Uh, the ice looked good. Uh, the team captains were there that night walking around and, uh, of course, we had the trusty Alan Watt beside me in case hell broke loose. Alan could make hell breaking loose look like the Fourth Street Market. You know, he could he could bring it into perspective. Nick Wilson, who was managing the crew on the ice setup and safety and security for everybody, and and then a, a whole bunch of other people that were working to make sure the teams were there and all everybody arrived and everything. So uh, Bob Gady, uh, Wayne Gretzky. And our doctor, um, team doctor, 
uh, and Gary and all the people I just talked about were in the hallway behind the Eskimo locker room at around nine in the morning, making some very firm discussion. There was, people were making their points very clearly and very loudly about what was up and what was down. And uh, Bob Goodnow and, 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 and uh, I was standing there and they asked me and I said, Gary, it's Celsius, it's not Fahrenheit. It's not nearly as cold as you think it is. <laughs> so so I, I wasn't going to ask this, but I'm going to ask, was there a really good chance that game wasn't going to go? Yes, yeah, I, I, it was too, uh, it was, there was a very good chance. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot, the, the weather was a pinch point of safety for people to understand, but, or to try and appreciate. But as you know, we had the benches heated with turbo uh, heaters on both sides. So I, when you were on the bench, it was like 90 above. People, guys were undoing their jerseys, sweating. The coaches, as you know, they were wearing those light jackets. And Glenn said, and uh, and on our bench, uh, he said, we were just roasting. He said, I, did, I wanted to undo the jacket, but the guy from the TV, CBC, kept saying, you have to have the jacket on because it's got oilers and it's all the paraphernalia. He said it was so hot. Wayne was saying at the night when they were skating in the morning, it was it was super. So you really never got cold. The guys would go out on the ice, do their 20-second shift, 25-second shift, come back to the bench. And, and, and the, the people that were going to suffer were in the stands. Yeah. You know, that, that was the issue. And nobody from Alberta Health or Ev City of Edmonton was really laying down any complaints about that. I mean, we'd all been at games, maybe the Western Final and for an Eskimo game or something like that. That may have been almost as cold. So... Uh, but the real action happened in the hallway at the Eskimo locker room. Well, for context, I guess it couldn't have been that cold, at least for that one guy who decided he'd do the streak without any clothes. Hey, was that streaker? Was he maybe part of that focus group when you were doing the, uh, the Molson thing back in the 90s? He was an incredible guy. At that very moment, I was standing beside Don Cherry on the field and Don was doing spikes from in his white full length fur coat, uh, info spikes from the, uh, from the field. And the guy went running by grapes, uh, between the hockey rink and the stands and he was naked and grapes barely cracked a smile. And he's, and then the people that were chasing him went by and he looked at me and he said, why chase him? Just hold up a blanket. He'll run to you. And, uh, and of course, that he tried to get over the uh, McDonald's sign, which yeah. McDonald's loved. McDonald's loved that; they were, they just loved that moment. And uh, so he had the police uh, arrest him and or take him away. And he turned out he was a welder from Fort St. John, BC. He was having a great day, and he thought to himself, "I got to be part of this. It's so exciting!" So he dropped the laundry and ran out on the field. So we made him sign later that afternoon a document that said he never again would be naked at an outdoor NHL game played at Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton in November. And he agreed to that, and I think he framed that document. So let me get this straight. This guy went from a Big Mac to a kid's meal just on the temperature alone. So anyway, listen, I want to talk about a few other things here. You had a great 15-year run with the hockey club as the president and CEO. Yeah, yeah. 
Man, I don't even know where to start with this one. Let's go with Edmonton Investors Group, and let's also talk about Gary Bettman. Because I get sure. the only time I kind of get angry is when I hear people say he doesn't care about Canadian teams. And having been on the inside and been in a few of those boardrooms with you, you could see how passionate he was about wanting yeah. this team not to go to Houston, not to go anywhere, but just to stay in Edmonton. And I always think it's horribly unfair that people can generalize like that. And I keep saying, no, 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 no. It is not that way at all. Do you concur? Uh, totally. Uh, my experience with Gary is completely uh, small market, uh, supportive, every chance possible. I mean, the league can't live on the five or six plus five million population cities in North America. Just can't do it. It needs to be popular and successful in places like Carolina and Edmonton. Uh, Calgary and so on and so forth. It needs to be successful in those markets. Uh, the Canadian markets are the heart of hockey. They're the traditional places where great hockey players come from. Connor McDavid, Wayne Gretzky, and Mark Messier are three examples. They are the backbone of the league. And if they don't survive, the league doesn't make it. It's like not having NFL football in markets like New Orleans and other places where football is football. I mean, it is everything. So he's a great defender of the Canadian franchises. Um, he's grown the league billions of dollars under his leadership. He provides a voice for everybody uh, who has a seat at the table. Um, he's a terrific leader. And uh, I think people, you know, when you have success like that, people look for cracks, but I don't think you'd ever find a Canadian franchisee, maybe the Leafs, because they got to share some of their gross wealth with the rest of us. But uh, I don't think at the end of the day, they really complain about what they've been able to get as a reward for being a Canadian franchise. So, no, I, I, Gary Gary's was terrific with us. Now, along with that, uh, Patrick, I mean, uh, Kevin Lowe takes over from Glenn Sather as GM shortly right after that, the same summer you come in as president CEO, yeah. um, the Edmonton investors group. Now it was an unruly number of people and there were issues with it, but even with Gary, maybe we don't keep that hockey team because the bottom line is you got to put the money on the table and here's a group that put the money on the table to keep the Edmonton Oilers where they belong. Talk about that era, even with its challenges. Sure. Um, 38 owners when I took over as president, all of them considering themselves my boss at the time. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, we, we got that done. I spoke to, and we're, we were able to, to implant a governance model uh, Stephen Covey model and it kind of really took roots and it was well done. They had a great chairman and leader in Cal Nichols. They had an excellent board of directors that, that sometimes vary between seven and nine of the owners. And, uh, and that board of directors did whatever they thought was right for the entire 38. Um, we never, we only had one cash call in 15 years. And that we never spent the money that was providing uh, uh, money in the accounts for the lockout in two, one, one of the lockouts, 204, I think, and um, 205. And uh, 
it was a really good group to work with. They got they started to understand how governance works, and they kept uh, supporting the team. They bought sweets and seeds, and we were popular in Lloydminster. <laughs> we oh, had yeah. five or six owners from Lloydminster, and uh, we had owners from Edmonton, owners from Calgary, and other places. And uh, you know, they bought it for 106 million Canadian, 76 US. ATB was a willing seller. At the time, they had uh, seized the property after Peter, and uh, they had a deadline to meet and so on and so forth, and they sold it to the next uh, guy for north of 250. So, um, you know, they did all right. They made money, just not very much, but they made some money just about every year. And at the end of the day, when they cashed out, they, they did well, and they deserve it. Uh, they hung in there, and they they supported us, and they made us uh, viable uh, during the tough times. The team sucked and the building was full. Uh, it's not the worst combination ever. I, I got to say, and I'll get to this a little indirectly, I, I had the privilege of working in media both in Edmonton and in Calgary, and I enjoyed and loved both cities very much. They're both so different, yet they're both very similar in, in yeah. a lot of ways. But I also saw the Battle of Alberta differently from both cities. And you know, it's easy to talk to a player who maybe played for the Flames or played for the Oilers and ask them what the Battle of Alberta was like. But I really enjoyed working with a guy named Ken King when I was in Calgary. And when I'm talking to you about the Battle of Alberta, you and Ken, you and Ken, to me, were just so similar in so many ways and how passionate you were about your hockey teams. Yet I'm almost convinced that there were a lot of issues that while the Battle of Alberta on the ice was always like this, there was always friction off the ice, you guys seem to work very well together for the good of hockey in Alberta. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that was necessary, Bryn, uh, through those days. I mean, we tried everything possible together to, uh, to raise enough money to pay the bills. We knew that there are ownership groups uh, weren't going to hang in there forever. There were other markets looking for NHL franchises, and there were other ownership groups. And uh, Ken and I were uh, became really good friends. I knew him when he lived in Edmonton and worked for the Sun. And uh, uh, Robin probably knew him then too. And um, he was he was uh, uh, he was a CFL guy. I remember him being very close at the uh, CFL Coach of the Year dinners that we had. And uh, the and the aftermath uh, parties at the top of the plaza, but uh, and I was with Molson in those days, so I, I knew him rather well. He he's a solid guy, really solid. Did a great job for the uh, for the Flames and the Flames organization. They had a large ownership group, so did so did Edmonton. There was a lot of you know it kind of looked like that in the mirror. And um, yes, we worked on so many things together, but a couple of things. Um, he never forgave me for not inviting the Flames to the first outdoor game. <laughs> and at least once a year it came up when he slid me the check for a dinner bill that said, this is because you know why you're paying for this. <laughs> and uh, We never watched a hockey game together while our two teams were playing. We, we went, we'd go to NHL meeting in New York, we'd go to a Ranger game or we'd go to Boston and watch a game there. We shared uh, our American Hockey League teams. Ours is in Bakersfield. They moved into Stockton after we left Stockton. That's only about 40 miles apart in California. Um, 
we competed against one another as best we could because we knew it was good for business, you know, out on the ice and in the streets, our fans against your fans. And that was good, good for business. And I still think it's great for business, but, um, and I had the pleasure of actually talking to him about a day before he passed away. I don't know what struck me. I should call Ken, which I did caught him at home. And, uh, and we had a really good conversation and uh, about 24 hours later, I found out that he passed away. So um, I consider him a great friend, and uh, and I'm sad that he's not here. Well, I always thought of him, and I only saw him as a as a visitor, a you know, a traveling media, as a passionate guy, but as a very friendly guy. There, when you yeah. said hello, there was a warm smile and a handshake there. And 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 now let's play hockey, and we're going to beat your ass, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, tell me, tell me this, Patrick, and and we've talked, touched on a lot of things today. The Heritage Classic, you uh, coming into the fold as president and CEO, uh, the Edmonton Investors Group. Let's not forget the return of the Edmonton Oil Kings. Yeah. Let's not forget. Um, the start of what we're now calling uh, Ice District and the new arena, there is a great legacy there. And uh, without dividing it up into exactly who did what, you've had some fingerprints on all of that. When you look back at that, Patrick, is there something that stands out for you that says, yeah, I'm glad I had a piece of that action? <laughs> Well, a lot of it was motivated around, you know, trying to do the right thing for the EIG. The, I, those guys and girls, they really deserved uh, to not have to pay any more bills after they contributed so much. So a lot of things like starting the Euler Foundation also in 2001 uh, as a way for us to create value, uh, bring our value, our brand value to the community. When I see the mustard seed, uh, Robin's been a recipient of uh, a large, a new alliance with the foundation. And, you know, these 50-50s, uh, the year that I was reading, Natalie shared with me that the Euler Foundation is going to gift north of 5 million bucks this year. Well, I can't think of any other organization. Now, that comes from people buying 50-50s, but collectively, they're putting five, six million dollars into the hands of very needy organizations in the community. And that's exactly what we wanted the foundation to do. So Doug Goss was our first chair and uh, Lyle, Lyle was our, Lyle Best was, uh, came in and joined us and he handpicked a number of people from his friends that we could call directors. And the foundation got started and we had a dollar, we had $1 in the deposit account. And uh, so I, I, I'd say that probably has the most impact. The, the whole arena thing is we had worked for a year to negotiate a new lease with uh, Northlands on the on Rexall Place, and it ended in 2012. And I I said to my counterpart across the table from Northlands, who had come to know intimately after all those meetings, when this expires in 2012, I'm telling you this: we're going to be living somewhere else. And of course, we didn't make it, but. Uh, we had to go back and beg for an extension. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Uh, but uh, I, absolutely, Rogers Place and the Euler Foundation, two big things. I wish we could have won in 206. 
in Carolina as we were supposed to. I don't know what went wrong. It just seemed we the night before we beat them four nothing, flew all the way down there and we didn't show up for the game. So not the game, not the team we really had. It was disappointing. But um, those 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 are the three uh, for sure of all the things that happened for sure for sure. Hey, before we talk about what you're doing now, because we don't want to take up, we've already taken up a ton of your time and we appreciate it. But I just want to go back to the foundation for a second because. Looking at these 50-50 numbers make me actually laugh because prior to the start of the foundation, I remember going to the community relations meetings at the Congress for the National Hockey League, and we would go around the table. And the Canadian, uh, I was the only guy, so I'm surrounded by all these women who were doing unbelievable work in their communities. But I was with Christy Fletcher from Toronto and Kathy Geeky from, from Calgary. And as they're going no. around the table, you know, they're saying in Atlanta they're thrilled because their 50-50 take every night is $500. And, you know, and that was great for Atlanta. But as we're going yeah. around, I'm looking at the other two ladies. I'm going, we're just going to just blow them away here. And then we get to the, the Calgary, the Edmonton, and the Toronto numbers, and it was like the jaws hit the floor. But you look at these 50-50 numbers here this year, the Joey Moss one was incredible that that uh, that just happened somebody took home over a million dollars but there's a million going back into wonderful organizations here 50 50 in this market and all these other canadian markets i guess it's just we grew up with that in the in the small town arenas it's just gone times a hundred thousand when you look at these nhl yeah. markets it's unbelievable it's the largest in the world and uh, so they uh, the group there likes to track 50 50 pots but they uh, and uh, some one of the directors was telling me recently that easily it's the largest 50/50 in the world, and uh, it's unique. It doesn't happen south of Red Deer. People from Red Deer North phone, go online and participate. They know from the data um, where it comes from, and, and it's, it's all an online deal these days. And so they know exactly where the participants are coming from. They don't know their names, but they know geographically. And um, there's nothing south of Red Deer. Edmonton will have a pot of 600,000 to 800,000 a game. Calgary, uh, same deal, same government, same taxes, different water, I guess, but uh, they're having a hard time exceeding 20 grand. You know, uh, maybe billionaires don't need 50-50s, but I just, it, it's a phenomena that nobody knows the answers to. I, I don't, I don't understand what it is, but what it's done, I think it's done right in Edmonton. And at the same, same time, people see it as a, people are, you know, community league started in Edmonton. People from Edmonton really believe in putting back and sharing and making others uh, 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 or helping others get to where we all should be let, raising the water in the pool and we see that all the time. I, I'm a big volunteer with Salvation Army. And uh, this year in the COVID times was our biggest year ever north of Red Deer. And so, I don't know. I can't explain it, but it's it's great for the community. It's phenomenal for the community. Okay, so tell everybody what you're doing now. now these days, and, and since 2015, I've been, uh, I'm a consultant. I do business development work for organizations. I'm currently working with, uh, in the beginning, I was working a lot with sports leagues and, and sport organizations on helping them become financially more uh, healthier. Uh, but um, I've expanded into, uh, you don't have to be very busy when you're a business of one or one and a half. 
Um, you don't have to, you don't need many clients until all your time's consumed. So currently I'm working in, uh, on three big projects. One's an arena development project. Surprise, surprise. Wow. We've been working on for a year or so with uh, ICC, the International Coliseum Corp, which is based in Phoenix. Um, I'm helping an organization in the legal sports gaming uh, field. Government's going to legalize sports gaming here in Canada very soon. And uh, so I, I'm working with one organization there. And on another on another front, I'm working with uh, I, with a transportation, a large, large transportation organization, on something called a safety campus, and uh, so that's that's about driverless vehicles and hydrogen and all that other stuff. Very, very cool, very cool stuff. So three leading edge projects, and at the same time, a big time volunteer with Pilgrim's Hospice, Salvation Army, and Rotary. Now. Got to ask you. Look, I look at your backdrop, Patrick, yeah. and I know you love to. I know you love to swing the clubs. Yeah, and uh, that part of it was always fun. Uh, you're still getting a chance to golf now and then. I play because you know the weather. I tell this to my friends in California. I said, in the month between May and September or August, you know, sun's up at five in the morning, and you can still get a round of golf in after five o'clock. <laughs> and, you know, it's not that dark. Like, I play a lot in the summer. So I'll play. I'll go and tee it up at my golf course at 6 in the evening. And then by 9, you're done. And, and there's still lots of light. So I, I play with the juniors from time to time, the 12-year-olds. And they they humble me. They humble me. Their glove folded perfectly in their back pocket, glasses up on the hat. You know, the swing's perfect and everything. I just love it. So yeah, I got my rounds in last year. I think I snuck out there 65 times or better. And uh, nice. And early in the morning, late at night. Well, we're just about two and a half weeks away from going back to those longer days in the evening. So uh, just hang in there, will you? I will, buddy. It's good seeing both you guys. And uh, I know, Bryn, you, uh, uh, you guys do a lot in the community and helping others. And I'm really uh, uh, a big supporter of the city and all the good things that we need we need to do to help others, uh, you know, through this time and all the time. So keep up the good work. I love, I've been listening to your podcast since I ran into you at uh, the drugstore the other day, Bryn, and uh, you guys got some great guests. The Dehatchuk one, I know Eric since we were in the ski business together way back when. That was a great interview. Super. Well, you know what? It's so much fun when we just get a chance to talk. Yeah. There's no real set pattern. We knew we wanted to talk about heritage classic and outdoor games, but we never were uh, too concerned that we were going to run dry on things to talk about because there's always a lot of fun topics, and that's how we find all of our guests. We do tend to yeah. veer a little bit, but it's been fun, and uh, thanks for supporting us and uh, sending out the good word, and thanks for being with us today. Uh, it's been great stuff. Good sport. Thanks a lot. Well, there you go, Patrick LaForge. The, uh, the the legacy is cemented. He has done an awful lot for the Edmonton Oilers organization over his 15 years. He's having some fun now. He's got some great stories. It's really nice of him to come on for over 40 minutes to chat with us today, Rob, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, Patrick had his fingerprints all over that franchise 
from the time he came in. And as we talked about with him, there were a lot of things. The the ground floor of the Heritage Classic, how the, it started off scribbled on the napkins, all the stuff he talked about. You know, you've also got the, the Edmonton Investors Group, uh, the development eventually uh, of the Arena District and the new rink. I mean, Patrick had his fingerprints on everything. Uh, a lot of tales to tell. We could have a we could have a, a an episode uh, uh, all over again with him anytime. We do have to tell you that the Outsiders is powered by the Macintosh Group and the team over there with Brent Macintosh. Very excited about their latest promotion for sellers. They're providing professional photography, three sixty degree tours, video, and floor plans of all other listings. A lot of other people do that, but here's here's where it's interesting. They have a campaign going now. It's called Coming Soon. They're starting to market the listing seven to ten days before it even has any showings. So you get a chance to take a look at this place and think, am I interested in that? And if I am, let me get on the hit list here so I can get in there fast once this thing goes public. Obviously, the idea is to create a little extra excitement for a home and create a list of people that would like to view that property on day one that it's available for showing and the result is, uh, it's really simple. It, there's there's more showings in less time, and they're finding now they've got competitive bids, which means that's driving their higher sa- their price, the sale price up. So it's working really well for everybody. If you'd like to get some more information from Brent, he would love to hear from you or any of his team. The Macintosh Group are very available to uh, to get. They're very they're easy to get a hold of. You just reach them at the Macintosh Group. The phone number is seven eight zero. 464-0075 or go online to macintoshgroup.ca tell them the outsiders sent you that way they know that you were listening to us a couple of other things here uh, the dog is down here in the studio Are you okay over there oh for a ball that's all it was don't worry everything's going to be fine uh anyway if uh, if you'd like to email us we'd love to hear from you it's real simple the Outsiders at Shaw.ca is our email address. If you're a guest, maybe you think we should try to get on. We would uh, we will do the best we possibly can. You can also check us out on Twitter. The handle is simple, at Outsiders2020. And the real big thing is make sure you tell your friends, if you're on Twitter and you see that we've got a new podcast out, retweet it would really be kind of nice. At the RSS feed, make sure that it's one of your favorites and that you're a subscriber. That means every time we drop a new episode, if you're an Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Casts, whatever, you'll uh, you'll be notified that the new hottest edition is out and you'll get it delivered right to uh, whatever source you want. And uh, and that's pretty much it. Robin, anything else before we disappear? This has uh, been, uh, been a good one today. Please, people, do all those things. Don't make us come looking for you. Ooh, that sounds very threatening. All right, Robin, uh, thanks for your time. Oh, one other thing, your support. Greatly appreciated, especially financial support. As we always say, it's great that Brent McIntosh has come on board and he's helping us out. Kind of pays the bills a little bit. But if you're interested in sponsorship or you want to be a potential advertiser on our podcast, we would love to hear from you. That is it. Robin, we'll talk to you next week, okay? You certainly will. See you, man. All right. Hi, guy, boy. Have fun storming the castle.